Welcome to UX Research Geeks, where we geek out with researchers from all around the world on topics they are passionate about. I'm your host, Tina Vitkova, a researcher and a strategist, and this podcast is brought to you by UX Suite, an all-in-one UX research tool. Hello, Geeks. This is the third episode of the third season, and we talk to Maria. Maria is a head of research at Oyster. She's probably one of my favorite people from the business. In this episode, we were looking again into cultural sensitivity, and we were looking quite into a deep level, I would say, for those 35 minutes available. And we were looking not only into making or conducting research uh, with users, but also into hiring of researchers, generations and the differences that they might be there or might not, political correctness in different cultural contexts and stereotypes. Please don't forget to follow Maria's blog, Psychology and UX. And if you're really interested, she has a great small podcast called The UX Guy to Galaxy with her two friends, which is definitely worth a listen. I just received another blog post from your beautiful blog. Yes. And I know it's about participant recruiting right now, which is a little bit playing into what we are going to talk about, but maybe explain me more. I know you a little, but for the audience, who are you? What do you do and why you write this very beautiful blog? Yeah, so who am I? That's a philosophical question. I am, yeah. a, at the moment, head of UX research at a company called Oyster. And Oyster is a company that helps other companies hire people anywhere in the world. It's a full distributed place, which that's why we're going to talk about culture today. It's a full distributed company with people from over, I think, 60 plus countries at the moment. So that's quite a diverse okay. yeah, <laughs> team. And I'm also working part-time at a new startup called Crowdsurf. It's based in the UK and we're developing a new live streaming app. So I do, I've been busy. And the reason, and my background is, I keep forgetting to talk about this. Yes, my background is in psychology. I have a PhD in cognitive psychology. Before I went, before I decided to go full-time into UX, I was a lecturer in cognitive psychology and cyber psychology. So I was very interested in human-computer interaction and how cognitive psychology comes into play. And uh, yeah, I was teaching about UX. And at some point I realized, actually, I'd rather just do that full-time than do the be in academia. I wanted to do something that has more impact and yeah, so that's it. But as you probably know, if you are an academic or you have some experience doing that, you get the bug it's really difficult to get rid of it so i like writing and sharing and talking so the blog was was an outlet for that before i started the Substack, i had other i've tried blogging and lots of things in the past like i think i remember using wordpress and what was blogger back in the day to so it was usually topics related to psychology and applied psychology because that's my passion trying to make the academic and all those dry things to turn them into something actionable. And it's something that I try to do in my job as well as the blog. And that's how the blog was created. Yeah, so very much recommended for the audience is to find your blog. We will also link it because it's really nice, really good topics and you go really deep. I don't know if I remember right, but the one before was on onboarding, right? Where you yeah different approaches and how to approach onboarding on its own. Very applied, I would say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I went through different kind of findings from psychology and theories and how you can use them. 
when you design like an app onboarding or onboarding experience. I hope that's helpful for you. Well, I will definitely use it. But you were mentioning, and this is where we, when we were brainstorming last time, agreed that this could be very interesting that you work at, at Oyster, which is a distributed company through 60 countries. And you have a team of people who have come from different backgrounds. And this is something I'm super interested in because also in our podcast, we are trying to give space to people from all around the world. We are not yet successful as I would wish, but getting there. So what is your experience from working in such a multicultural company? Big question. Yeah, it's a good question. At first, I need to clarify that I live in the UK. I live in a place called Sheffield. It's quite a green city, one of the greenest in Europe, but I'm from Greece. So to, to begin with, I'm already multicultural. I'm in a place where I don't really know what my identity is. I just say European. And Oyster is full of people. That, half of Oyster is people like me that were born in one place and moved around and they end up in a very different country. And others, they're, they're, raised in, they're living and working in the same place they were born. And in the past, I had experienced multicultural environments, but I was always in the UK. And they were in the UK. So there, it was people that had left their own culture and moved to, the, to this one. They tried to adapt. So I was in a bit of a shock when I started at Oyster. I was aware of having this experience in multicultural context, but being in a place where you're working with people that have never, they've never been in another place apart from their own hometown, and they don't have the same exposure as you in the British culture or European culture even, that was a bit of a shock um, and it took me time to adapt. I, I remember having some meetings and going along with like my expectations and having this agenda, doing things my own way because I was used to everybody doing it the same way in companies in the UK, even when people were from different places. So that was something I had to learn. And it was part of the, I think that part of the onboarding experience, there were a few things about culture, but nothing very deep into it. And I had to learn by doing because there were a few misunderstandings or meetings where I felt that what I said might have been offensive to the other person. Or So that was a wake up call for me. And I realized, okay, actually, I need to take a break and I need to read up on this and find out more about how I can collaborate with my own team. And then the second step for me was that our users are the same. So Oyster has people in a, very similar to the people that work at Oyster. And our, it was realizing that actually we need to have a similar approach when we do interviews, when we do research, because their culture plays a huge role in, in everything, like the way that we understand the world, the way we interact, the way we communicate. Yeah, that was, that was a big thing for me at the time. And I'm still learning. I haven't found a solution or a, a perfect system to solve this problem. But I think that the first step is like being aware that this is a thing, that there are differences. And when you work in a distributed environment or you're working with users that are based in different places, that can be a problem. It's something you need to think about before you do anything, before you start planning your research or you start planning your meetings with your colleagues, you need to have a look. One thing that's really useful here for Oyster is that the, we have profiles. So that's something that can help. Each employee has a profile in which they share information about themselves, as well as the preferred working styles, things to know about them. And that is a very good starting point. So <laughs> I started before it's eating, going to this place, checking, and some things have to do with culture. Others, because culture is one thing, but also individual differences come into play when it comes to work. Yeah. And yeah, so using this as a guideline, before you even schedule a meeting with somebody, check. Do they like communicating asynchronously? Do you need to give them a heads up before you book a meeting? 
what time can you book a meeting? What's, do they need structure and agenda? Because some cultures and some people need more structure than others. Others like ambiguity. So by, by looking at this profile, help me loads. And I think if you work in a team that's multicultural, consider doing something similar. Just give people a way to express themselves and be open to each other about who they are and how they like to work with each other. This reminds me of, it's a little bit visible in LinkedIn. And I think Vitaly Friedman was sharing it recently as well, this page of how to work with me, which is great because you already know, okay, this could be the triggers, this could be, and it's not tied to any kind of culture. It's like, okay, this is me and this is what sets me up and this is what energizes me, this is what kills me, whatever. Really interesting. And there are two levels. One is the team level, one is the user level, and I will go to the user level a little bit later because I'm super interested in hiring researchers. Uh, I can imagine that's like wild when it comes to expectations, situations they are coming from, styles, they lead research as well, although yeah, there is methodology. So can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so the hiring, that was another shock. In the past, I had been hiring manager and part of hiring panels with companies. Again, we, I remember interviewing candidates from different countries, different backgrounds, but as I said, it was always based in one place. So we all lived in the same country. So that wasn't, there pretty much people try to adapt. So they hide some of those differences or they learn how to behave in a way that's expected. But that wasn't the case with Oyster. And it starts from the first step of the hiring process, submitting their CVs and their applications. For example, I don't know, I don't know how things are where you are, but in the UK, you're not allowed to have a picture or personal information in your like marital status in your application, your CV. While in other countries, people have pictures, they tell you about their children, they tell you about everything about themselves, which you can't do here because it would go against privacy laws and discrimination policies and so on. So that was the first thing for me, seeing the CVs by applicants and seeing all this information and feeling like something was terribly wrong because I'm aware of the biases that come into place when you see somebody's mm. picture. And it continues from that to the way that people write, if they write cover letters or not. I think in some places now people have stopped doing that and others do. The interview practice as well. In certain places, candidates are more casual and informal in the interviews. And in others, they're very formal. So we had, for example, interviewing someone from the US to casually dress. And there was somebody from India. She was all prepared, like all professional. So you need to adapt to that. And as well, because they see if you're the interviewer and you're casually dressed and you're interviewing somebody from a place where they expect the interview to be more formal, you have to be responsive to that. Either communicate openly during the interview itself or prepare the candidate in advance about what to expect. There's so many communication styles as well. As we know, there's lots of research showing that culture affects how people communicate. And in some places you get more, you, you get much more context and you have the high and the low context cultures. And in some cultures they rely heavily on nonverbal cues, for example, China, but then you've got places like the US where people need a lot of detail and they have to articulate pretty much everything. So that's something that happens a lot. Again, during the interviews, you have to, which is why you have to be mindful of what, where's the, where does the UX research I'm interviewing coming from? What's the background? what's their experience and be able to read between the lines during an interview. And that also affects the way you communicate towards them, the way you ask questions and the way, uh, yeah, it's, it pretty much affects the whole process. And beyond that, because there's no something specific to the UX researcher, 
you, it does it can affect, as you said, the way that people do research as well. For example, being from Greece, I come from a culture that likes clear real rules and structure. And unfortunately, I can say that this I have that. I'm not a big fan of ambiguity, which affects the way I do research. I do know in advance, try to work out what can go wrong, have a plan, have a detailed plan. People from other cultures, however, don't have that. And they, they might have a plan, but it might not be as detailed. And then when you work within a team with people from various countries and research different cultures, that actually can become quite apparent in the way that you work, in the way you prepare for a research study, and the way you communicate your findings and so on. Yeah, even communicating findings can be affected by this, whether you prefer to things like humility, for example. We had a conversation with one of our new researchers, Sophia, who's a senior UX researcher from Portugal, but she's also worked with loads of multicultural teams. And we're saying that researchers from Europe would be very careful and quite, they have high humility, so they wouldn't really brag about the impact of the research because that's the culture aspect there. But research from the US would probably, in some cases, do the opposite and they would brag about uh, how impactful their research is. That's one example. Yeah, yeah, the selling, the selling is definitely because I already, for example, see, I, I was born in Czechoslovakia, which is not a country existing anymore. So it's Slovakia and Czech Republic. And we already say there in that case, like the Czechs can sell their self better, but in comparisons to Americans or other culture with the like self-marketing, where it's way larger, it's different as well. But you were mentioning two points, which I'm super interested, low and high context. If you could maybe explain it with your own words, I can maybe then add some story. And when it comes to the structure, this is where I'm super interesting because that goes into like how you prepare research, then it goes to the communicating findings. Maybe we can go deeper there. This is more to do with using verbal and nonverbal communication as in, in, in the interactions with each other. So in some cultures, people use a lot of nonverbal communications. And for example, they might be nodding, doing gestures, gesturing a lot. And many things are between the lines. So you don't actually say every, everything. You don't have to spell everything out. People assume and make their own interpretations of things. In other cultures, people are very direct and they pretty much all the information they have to tell you, they communicate to you directly. There's no, there's no subtext. And for example, that's one culture that does that is the US. And we do see that in the way the American people usually communicate and tend to tell you everything. Then on the other hand, you've got British people that have a lot of the nonverbal <laughs> communication happening in comparison. And that's something I've experienced in with mostly with colleagues, not so much with research, because I think sometimes when you have users, people are aware of the of what's happening and also Having remote interviews changes dynamics, I think, a bit because people, when mm. they're communicating remotely, they sometimes adapt to that. And nonverbal cues are often missed anyway. So people try to be much more expressive. And it's interesting that you're going into the direction nonverbal, verbal, because for me, the high and low context is mostly complicated in the verbal level, where mm -hmm. we're mentioning Britons, where something means something for them. And when they say, oh, this is interesting, it can also mean that this is really not good. Just try to make it better. Yeah. Uh, I live in the last five years in German-speaking countries. 
And I lived in three and a half years in Germany. And now I am two years plus something in Austria. And already there, you can see the differences, especially in email communication. German is like direct, very short on words, very to the point. And when it comes to the Austrian one, I sometimes really have to go into the translator and trying to figure out what are they trying to say? What is my action to take on it? So this is where I'm struggling the most. And if it's happening in a conversation, then I am sometimes like, okay, are you trying to tell me something? And I just don't know. And this brings me to another question. Do you see any benefits of not knowing what is the cultural of the person on the other side and being able to explore it on, on in that situation right away? One benefit I can see is that actually knowing can lead to stereotyping. And sometimes <laughs> when you think you can make assumptions based on what you think. But if you don't have that context, you can just try to find out by asking the person. And I think sometimes I was like one of the solutions and the ways to improve the way we do research with the multicultures is actually like open communication and being clear about what we're doing. So not having this, uh, the, all this preconceived assumptions about the other person can actually help you to learn more about them without, without projecting what you already think. Because each person, we might be affected by culture, but that's not all we are. Culture is one small part of a person. There's much more individual differences and much bigger. So it is it, just being aware that there might be some cultures without knowing who they are is a good first step. And you just have to ask and be open and honest and sometimes a bit vulnerable, like explaining if you, for example, if you have an interview with a, with somebody and you do sometimes when you have a difficult interview and the other person doesn't open up and you can't figure out why that's happening. Sometimes being honest and just maybe talking a bit about the culture, your background or the background might be something that could help. And mm -hmm. if it's a if it's a user from a different country that you're not familiar with, for example, you can start like bringing this up and try to understand their context during this conversation. Interesting. And you, we are already in the space of user research and you are already pointing out something that we together, or not we together, but named as a cultural sensitive research. So what would be your, I don't know, structure or advices on how to be how to lead the research study in a cultural sensitive way, how to prepare for it? Yeah, that's, again, it's, it's a good question. As I said, I think that the first step is just be aware that this is a thing, <laughs> that there is culture does play a role. And if you're, if you have users, check who your users are, where they're based. And if you have a product or a service that is used by people from many different places, you need to have a sample, first of all, find a way to include people from many as more places as you can in your research. So make sure that you give people a voice. I think that's like knowing that the cultural differences exist and then giving people a voice is the second step. That can be quite tricky saying that because there are other things that come into play with the cultural differences, which is time zones, language barriers, more more boring the incentives sometimes you might not be able to offer incentives in participants in other countries so you might have to find another way because mm -hmm. so there are lots of issues that you have to overcome to be able to give those people the voice and then reading always read like it's not just about culture just reading is something all ux professionals should be doing we should be learning constantly Try to read about different cultures, try to understand how other people think and how the, even the politics in different parts of the world, that helps you to get an understanding of 
your users and what they're experiencing because nobody exists in a vacuum, right? And if you work in a, in a company that has people from other places, if in a distributed company, talk to them as well. Like talking to your colleagues and understanding their perspective can also be beneficial when you're doing the research and enables you to be more sensitive, more culturally sensitive in that. And when it comes to the research itself, using plain, inclusive language is very important, especially when language can be a concern as well. And make sure that the terminology you use makes sense. So that's, I have a recent example with this from Oyster. We were using certain HR words. Many people being either British or American or having a lot of experience in those cultures, we actually had assumed that everybody knew and everybody thought that we meant, like when we used the term, that's what it meant. I can't really tell you more because of the... <laughs> yeah. Because of the NDA. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but there were specific words that, yeah, we were using in the platform, we were using when we were communicating with our users and we realized in the study, but actually, oops, some people in some countries think of something completely different when they hear that term. And that was, a, yeah, again, it's something to make sure... The, the terms that you use in your survey or your interview mean what you think they do for people from those places. So maybe start with, if you're doing an interview, start with asking people what the thing when they hear a specific word or define the terms that you're using. Like it's something really simple, but it can make a huge difference. Because if you don't, you might end up with very strange results and confusion. That's a good one. We work a lot. We talk about work a lot. It's a part of our personality. What do we do? But the relationships to work is different culture from culture. Again, U.S. and British culture is very different from continental Europe or Asia. Can you maybe, I am there a little bit trying to geek out right now. Can you maybe say there, what do you see differences when it comes to culture? We are not saying that it's something written in stone, but maybe what you are observing. Yeah, I mean, that's, there's quite a lot of things that I, see, I was going to mention it during the hiring thing, but I totally forgot. <laughs> Because <laughs> uh, there are this like work-life expectations, things like holiday, how you feel towards the, your people that are your seniors. That is very different depending on the place you're from. And when you try to create a culture in a distributed company, you try to make sure that everybody, you try to find a way that everybody feels similar because everybody is equal in a way that we, all your employees have similar rights and that's a huge challenge. I did notice that we had people who send centered places. At Oyster, we're very flexible. If you have to go to the dentist for two hours in the morning, you can go. You don't need to ask anybody. Just say, I'm not available. This for many people, that was a struggle. The idea that you don't work nine to five. You don't have to ask somebody. You don't need to get permission from your supervisor to do that. The expectations about how long you're supposed to work as well. And when it's the same across cultures and the company that can create a lot of issues, especially from cultures that are not used to having this kind of freedom. So the, we have quite, quite a few people from Spain and Greece and South America where that's not very common. Usually they have somebody checking what they do and they're supposed to produce a certain amount of work. Yeah. So that's something that I've come across a lot and at Oyster. Of course, I can feel it on my own bed especially when you're talking about your relationship to management here, his authorities, it's very different from a post-communistic bloc than in a democratic country for a longer time. You were mentioning also politics. And when it comes to politics, one of the questions I'm super interested in is what differences in generations, because that's also a little bit of a different culture. 
Oh, generations is a weird one because generations seems to be different than any other culture. <laughs> the generations, because of, it's something that personally as well I've noticed that in certain countries, the generations are a bit, a few years behind the mm -hmm. American <laughs> generations that we have in mind because technology doesn't, it didn't progress the same rates in all parts of the world. So the whole idea of generation is a bit faulty and it needs to be considered with other things in mind. But there are yeah. things we can do, like to do, for example, checking how much people know about technology. If you work in a tech company, have a product, I don't assume that somebody is going to be tech savvy or not because of their generation they belong in. But yeah, I have mixed, mixed feelings about it because it, it's not that there's not much clear research like suggesting that the findings apply to everybody. I don't know if that makes sense. It's just that it, it totally it's makes sense. Marketing totally. categorization in some ways, isn't it? Yes, because why I'm going into this direction, I'm happy that you're saying it so openly and so directly because we are throwing with this terms of like millennials, generations at and, and possibly, and I get it. I get it. I'm, when I see the description of a millennial, I would say me and my friends are just ticking the boxes. I, for example, love Dr. Eliza Philby, who is British, and she does her podcasts and her summaries in her very nice blog as well. And it's just very different to my experiences as a woman in almost 40s to what she is describing what is happening in Britain, because it's a very different country from where I come from. And when she's looking into generations of women, or I think she had also a piece of non-binary people, transgender people, and how they are in generation changing their circumstances and situations, it's super different. And it's going back to the politics. It's going back to the whole world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's it. It's a, sometimes we do have to simplify things to do like mass analysis or to yeah. find patterns. But when it comes to, I don't know, like I, I like getting an individualized kind of approach when it comes to research. So you do, there are all those things, but it's also the person and you need to focus and find what's the context around this particular person. And the generational stuff is, it, it might apply if you live in the US or specific parts of the world where pro progress happened in, in a specific way. But I know that from Greece as well, like that things, generations were, that don't make sense in the way that they're defined mm. for the US, for example, because of the rate of te technology politics, as well as you said, there's, yeah, it's a, it's an oversimplification. Like for example, saying we're developing a product for Gen Z, that doesn't, doesn't say anything. You just yeah, have to... yeah. yeah. It doesn't. It really doesn't. Mm -hmm. In some ways, it's very US, US centric, like kind of approach. I, and, and I get it because if you have a cultural dominance in the world, we had it with Britain in the 19th century, most probably. We had it with France and the other. We had it in, with Greek in ancient times. They weren't just products developed for <laughs> generations back then. But, the, and this is where I maybe want to not close, but go into a different topic, because when we were preparing, we were also very conscious of, we have to be careful with this topic. So we don't, are not offending, insulting anybody, not making way too much jokes, because I am very well known and you probably have also some kind of type of humor, which might be not welcome by others. And we are at this point in the world where, and this is some, something where the whole world is talking about it on different levels. We are woke, and I think a researcher has to be woke because that's something, I don't know, you have to be awake and aware of things and topics in which diversity and inclusion. 
On the other side, we are in the times of political correctness, which is even going to the direction of cancer culture. And my question to you would be, how do you deal, what will be your recipe not to be overly apologetic when making mistakes and how to learn from them? That's a really good question. And it touches some sensitive topics there. It's also a bit weird for me because I am part of lots of minority groups, like in terms of my identity. I think like I hit lots of most of the boxes. But at the same time, I think like being open, open and honest and potentially sometimes fragile and like being able to show our vulnerability is important because we are all, we're humans and we're going to be making mistakes. We might say something that could offend. It's possible. And as we grow older, that becomes harder and harder because there's so many things changing. And as I'm growing older, I start understanding the older people when I was a teenager and I, and I was, when you're in your early twenties and you see all these old people struggling to keep up with the times. I can start experiencing it. It does become harder and harder. Things change so dramatically from year to year. I'm sure I'm making lots of mistakes. I'm sure most of us are. And But just being open about this, apologize, try to understand the other person. Like If you say something that might cause pain or make somebody uncomfortable, be, being able to own it and actually question it, try to understand what's behind that is, is we shouldn't just get defensive. I think that's I'm trying to do, not be defensive and try to be open to that because that's what ultimately leads to empathy, I think. You are saying a very important point because I know, I think it's also important or natural that in a certain point we are getting defensive because when we do a mistake and somebody accuses us of being really bad in any kind of, then the defense mechanism is very natural. But I think the, even the recognizing more like, oh, I'm in defense mode. I'm... I am trying now to defend me and my my whole life philosophy and then holding the space of this misunderstanding and be like, okay, pause, take a minute and maybe think about what was just said. We, I don't think we are doing this very often, do we? No, and I think the reason is, as you said, the whole, I don't want to say the terms, <laughs> it's so scary now <laughs> with the, with this kind of culture, but Sometimes you don't get the chance to have a conversation. Like I'm aware of people that they might say one thing and they're just being ostracized. So they don't even get the chance to mm -hmm. realize that they're being different. And that can cause issues. It does affect us as well in, I think, in UX research because we deal with humans and users. And that reminds me of, I've had experiences of quite a few users and in interviews not being politically correct. And... In some of those cases, I found myself on the other side. And that's where I had to do the same. I had to, because if somebody says something that offends you, that might not be appropriate for the culture you're from, because that's, again, culture and political correctness is it's not the same everywhere. For example, yeah. what you can say in Greece exactly. and get away with. <laughs> and I had to do the same and have to stop myself from reacting and being, because when you're interviewing somebody and you you can't really judge them or... But of course you do, like unconsciously we do, that's we're humans. Yeah. <laughs> and I had to pause and, and, and try to understand. And instead of making any judgments, I just tried to ask all of questions to try to understand what they meant and what was the issue, why they made a specific, specific comment. But that's really hard. I am <laughs> very much thinking in the last couple of weeks about preparing some materials about why UX research is political and why we have to, because I'm encountering some stuff either from clients or users which could be labeled as offensive and I'm like 
sometimes I'm in, in such a shock that I'm like, oh, just quiet because I'm able to express what is just going in me. And sometimes I'm like, should I be saying something? Because it's going to twist the conversation into very different directions. So this is the struggle that I see there as well. But thank you very much for your wise words. Is there anything that you would be like, because I know you prepared hard for the episode where you are thinking like, Tina, why didn't you give me space for expressing this thought? And I want to say it. I try to think about it. What have I done or what I should be doing better as well? Like this, the great thing about this episode was it got me thinking about how can I do what I'm doing and how can we do what we do in my work every better? How can we be more inclusive and it was a bit of a way to reflect upon my own like practices and experience. But yeah, it was, I think the most important thing is the dangerous thing we're talking about cultural differences and cultural sensitivity and this kind of research is the other stereotyping. That's something that I often struggle with and that applies not just culture, but also any kind of individual or any kind of differences that you can think of. For Yeah, different groups of people. It's easy when you try to understand them to end up creating a stereotype and making false assumptions based on that instead of the person on the other side. So you might end up accidentally leading the conversation in an unintended way because you have these expectations of them. And even mm. creating an interview guide or a survey that you might know, it's not conscious, but it might happen because you have this idea of who they might be. So like this, the thing for me is that when you try to be culturally sensitive, but also make sure you don't overdo it and you don't stereotype and the person, its user, its person is different. So try to consider the context and their background, but also listen to the person themselves, if that makes sense. It makes sense totally. And thank you for sharing this wisdom that this overdoing is yeah, because it brings you to a different bias. Beautiful. Where can people follow you? Uh, as you said, my blog, they called UX. It's on Substack and LinkedIn as well. I'm one of the people that I'm still on Twitter. I'm, I know I should, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't be, but I'm too old. And I think LinkedIn is probably the best place if you're interested in my UX research. If anyone's interested in street photography, they can find me on Instagram. <laughs> that's all. Oh, nice. Okay, good. Good, oh, to... good to mention. We also have a podcast that's quite, it's a baby podcast. We started it quite recently. What is the name it's of the podcast? We love friends. to UX Guide to the Galaxy. Nice. Geeks. We, we had to find a probably geeky title. And yeah, we don't do very regular episodes, but it's with the two friends of mine. Another Tina and Stacey. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much for inviting me. Best of luck with, with this new season as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to UX Research Geeks. If you liked this episode, don't forget to share it with your friends, leave a review on your favorite podcast platform, and subscribe to stay updated when a new episode comes out. This podcast was brought to you by UX Tweak, an all-in-one UX research tool.